Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 7. We're going to be reading verses 10 through 16. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to make a confession this morning. It might be a little bit shocking to all of you, but um, I don't believe in the virgin birth. Now, before you leave the building, before you speed dial Grand Rapids and turn me in, if you, uh, let me explain what I'm saying by that. If you read most modern Reformed theologians, most Reformed systematic theologies, you'll recognize that most Orthodox Reformed theologians also do not believe in the virgin birth, at least not technically. Consider, for example, Robert Lethem, whose systematic theology, a great one published in 2019 by Crossway, he writes this about the virgin birth. The expression virgin birth does not make sense. Jesus' birth was a normal human delivery. His mother was pregnant for nine months and then gave birth in the usual way. Another Reformed theologian, John Frame, in his systematic theology, published in 2013, writes this of the virgin birth. He says, We often speak of the virgin birth as the great miracle by which Jesus came into the world. Actually, Jesus' birth was a natural and normal birth. So you see, when I say I don't believe in the virgin birth, I'm in good company, good orthodox company, in fact. Now, while I don't believe in the virgin birth, I, along with Lethem and Frame and most Reformed theologians, I agree and believe and pronounce and proclaim the virginal conception of Jesus. That's a little different. There's a distinction there, and Lethem describes it. He begins by talking about the misnomer of the virgin birth, he says the expression virgin birth does not make sense. Jesus' birth was a normal human delivery. His mother was pregnant for nine months and then gave birth in the usual way. And then he goes on to say, here's the distinction. What was unique was the conception. This took place without the involvement of a human father. For this reason, the term virginal conception more adequately describes the reality. You see, Jesus' birth was normal. It was as normal as my birth. Well, maybe not exactly me. I was like 12 pounds as a baby. So <laughs> as normal as most people's births. It was his conception that was supernatural, that was miraculous, that was extraordinary, and the work of the Holy Spirit. So while I don't technically believe in the virgin birth, I do very much believe in the virginal conception. Now, I recognize I'm being a little clever this morning and trying to toy with you a bit to get your attention, but I'm doing that with good reason. Because when it comes to the doctrine that we know as the virgin birth, 
misconceptions abound. You like that little pun? There you go. It's good, right? Misconceptions abound. I've already shared one of those. It's really the name, right? It's not really quite right. But there are other misconceptions uh, about the virgin birth. And then in addition to those, those uh, misconceptions, we also have textual issues here in the Scriptures themselves that bring challenges to this doctrine of the virgin birth. In addition to the misconceptions and the textual issues that challenge this doctrine, we have the basic kind of challenge of believing it. It is often hard for people to believe. It's often the area of our faith that is open to ridicule. If you watch a, you know, a skit on Saturday Night Live or Monty Python, they're going to go to the virgin birth because you know, there's a lot of humor around that. It seems on its face utterly ridiculous. It's like a, a bad look for Christianity. It's like socks and crocs. You know, why do we keep this around? Shouldn't we just get rid of it? And because of all those problems and misconceptions around it, the textual problems, the mere fact that it kind of lends itself to ridicule, it's hard to believe, it has led some to just get rid of the doctrine entirely, saying we should stop proclaiming it entirely, or we should at least kind of hide it in the closet like some crazy uncle. We shouldn't really talk about this doctrine. But this morning, I want to do just that. I want to talk about the doctrine of the virgin birth. I want to defend the doctrine of the virgin birth. And yes, I will use the convention virgin birth because it's really hard not to. And virginal conception doesn't really roll off the tongue. So we're going to stick with it for the purposes of the sermon, even though I don't think it's technically right. Now, before I offer that defense of this doctrine, why I think it still matters, why it's important for the church to proclaim it, let's look first at a couple of other misconceptions, and let's look at that textual issue. Let's look at all the reasons why people find it hard to accept this doctrine. So let's do a little bit of theology this morning. Get excited. I know you're ready for this. Doctrinal sermon coming your way. No additional charge, by the way. This is free. Let's talk about a couple of those misconceptions around this doctrine. The first misconception is the virgin birth explains the origins of the divine nature of Jesus Christ. Many people believe it's the virgin birth that explains the divine origins of Jesus Christ. Now, Orthodox Christianity holds that Jesus is one person possessing two natures, a human nature and a divine nature, fully human and fully divine. Jesus is the God-man, but how did he get that way? And some people try to explain all of that by the virgin birth, even offering a biological explanation for how Jesus received his divine nature. And this is how the reasoning goes. Mary was Jesus' human mother. That's where he got his human nature from. And God, instead of Joseph, was his father, and that's how Jesus received his divine nature from God. That view is false. The doctrine of the virgin birth has absolutely nothing to do with how Jesus has a divine nature. It speaks only to his human nature, how he received that from Mary. And the reason why it doesn't shed light, the virgin birth doesn't shed light on how Jesus received his divine nature, that is because Jesus always had a divine nature. I should say more particularly the Son of God. 
You see, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. There are no origins to His divine nature because the Son of God is preexistent. The Son of God is eternal. The Son of God was always the Son of God, always divine. From, the human, from Mary, He received and assumed to Himself a human nature, adding it to His divine nature. You see, sometimes people confuse Orthodox Christianity with pagan mythology. In pagan mythologies, there are these stories of how gods mate with mortals and produce a god-man type of person. Hercules' story is exactly that. Zeus has relationships. Hello. There we go. All right. So Zeus had relations with a mortal woman, and Hercules was born. That's pagan mythology, not Christology. As A.N.S. Lane put it, God is His Father at the level of His eternal existence as God, not at the biological level. So one of the misconceptions around the virgin birth is regarding the divine nature of Jesus Christ. It did not come from the virgin birth. Jesus, the Son of God, I should say, the second person of the Trinity, was always divine. He always was, is, and will be divine. The second misconception regarding the virgin birth is that the virgin birth explains the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. The sinlessness of Jesus Christ. This too is wrong. You see, in the early church, they had a kind of a very negative view of, of human sexuality, and um, that would be an understatement. In fact, they viewed sex as something as bad as something produced by human passions and the flesh, that it was this kind of carnal and bad thing. And so, given that misunderstanding of human sexuality, it's not surprising that many of the early church fathers looked at the virgin birth, a birth that involved conception without human sexuality, that this was how we got to the idea that Jesus is sinless. Even Augustine embraced this view. And the logic of it goes like this. Sex and sexual desire are bad. All ordinary humans are conceived through sexual relations with sexual desire. Sin must be transmitted through human sexuality, particularly from the lineage of the Father. Jesus was conceived without human sexuality, without the presence of a father. Ergo, He was conceived without sin. Nice and tidy, right? It makes all the sense in the world, but there's a problem with it. An inconvenient problem. Anyone know what that problem is? Mary. <laughs> Mary's the problem, right? Mary, who was born of parents in the ordinary way, born with a sin nature. She had a human father and a human mother, and Jesus received His human nature from her. So how do you fix that problem? Well, some have posited the idea of the immaculate conception of Mary, that Mary too is sinless, and that's how you fix the problem. Of course, that lends that itself is a wrong doctrine, but has led to other wrong beliefs regarding the understanding of Mary's role in redemption. The virgin birth doesn't explain the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Jesus' sinlessness is explained by the power of the Holy Spirit in the Incarnation. As John Calvin put it, Christ was not free of all taint merely because He was born of a woman unconnected with a man, but because He was sanctified by the Spirit. 
Or as John Frame puts it, it is God's decision, not the absence of a human father, that exempted Jesus from inherited sin. Scripture tells us specifically that it was the Spirit's involvement that made the child to be holy. So the doctrine of the virgin birth should not be used to suggest that sin is transmitted through the male lineage rather than one's female ancestry. The virgin birth does not explain the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. So you can see there's all this kind of difficult and and these misconceptions around the, the doctrine of the virgin birth, a myriad of misconceptions surrounding it. And then I mentioned that there's this textual problem on top of those things that bring a challenge to this doctrine. Let me explain what that textual challenge is. Perhaps you picked up on it when you heard Isaiah 7.14 read this morning. Listen again to that verse. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. Do you see it? You see what's missing there. There's no virgin mentioned, right? It says a young woman is with child. But then we come to Matthew one twenty three in the New Testament, and it reads as follows. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. There is the virgin, but where did she come from? What's going on here? Why is there this disparity? If you could put up that slide there for a moment. If you look at the slide, we have here a tale of three different texts. How does this happen? Well, we start with Isaiah 7.14, the one I read to you, and you heard read from the New Revised Standard Version. Look, the young woman is with child. Many commentators will point out the word used there is the word for young woman of marriageable age. There is another word in Hebrew that could have been used that explicitly and specifically means virgin. It was not used in the Hebrew text. But then later, about 200, 300 B.C. area, the Bible is is translated from Hebrew into the Greek text, what we know as the Septuagint, abbreviated by the Roman numeral 70 there. There it's translated as, Behold, a virgin shall conceive in the womb. Those translators chose the word for virgin in the Greek, even though there was another alternate word for young woman. And then we come to our Matthew text in the first century, the Greek New Testament, and there we have Matthew drawing from the Septuagint rather than the Hebrew text, most likely, and we get our text, look, the virgin shall conceive. You could take that down. Now, the mere fact of that disparity has raised in many scholars' minds, well, this is Matthew misappropriating this text for purely dogmatic reasons, and we should get rid of this doctrine. And then on top of that, they talk about how the prophecy in Isaiah 7 about this son, that the whole text there, the context seems to be suggesting that this son of Ahaz, this one will come, this will come in the time of Ahaz, and that's true, it seems to indicate that. So all of this leads to a lot of doubt about this doctrine. Now, I, of course, reject that uh, critique of the doctrine. I think there are good arguments to be made that explain all of those things. I would love to do that this morning, but I would think my sermon would be way too long. And I'm mindful of the homiletical advice that states that the head can only absorb what the seat of the pants can endure. So I, I won't spend an inordinate amount of time, but let me suffice it to say this this morning. 
But the disparity in those texts can be explained uh, very simply, I believe. First of all, you think about the context of the world in which Isaiah lived, a young woman of marriageable age, it is right and fair to believe it would have been a normal custom and ethics, given the protection of one's chastity in those times, that the woman would indeed have been a virgin. And the fact that Jewish translators in the 3rd or 2nd century B.C. who had no axe to grind about the virgin birth, for sure, chose to translate the word as virgin tells us perhaps more about the meaning of the Hebrew text than people give them credit for. They chose the word virgin. And as far as the timing of things, we have many double fulfillments in the Scripture and the idea that there could be a son born in the time of, I, of, of Ahaz and then a greater fulfillment is not, it's certainly common in scriptural typology and prophecy. We see it all the time. And as many commentators, including John Oswald on the Hebrew text here, notes the oddities here seem to speak beyond a mere human child in the time of Ahaz. But having said all that, there are a lot of problems around this, right? There are these misconceptions about this. There are these textual things you have to work through. And because all of that, and of course there's the whole ridicule thing, many have come to that conclusion, do we really need this doctrine? Is it necessary? Is it a necessary thing to defend? I mean, will the Jenga tower of our faith collapse if we remove this one block of the virgin birth from it? Well, let me try to answer that in my conclusion this morning. Let me try to answer why I think this doctrine still matters, why we should proclaim it, why I believe it. Let me share some of those with you this morning. Now, the most simple reason why I proclaim this doctrine is because the Scriptures teach it. Both Matthew and Luke explicitly pronounce and proclaim the virgin birth, in their birth narratives of Jesus. So at one level, hey, the Scripture says it, that's good enough for me, but I think the reasons go beyond that. There are other reasons why this doctrine, deeply theological reasons why this doctrine is important to our faith and true and right and why it matters. And I want to credit uh, John Frame for uh, many of these insights here. Let me give you four particular reasons quickly this morning why this doctrine matters, why it's worth proclaiming and defending, why I believe it is truth. Reason number one is that it is a suitable sign, particularly to Israel, that Jesus is the Messiah. It's a suitable sign, particularly to Israel, that Jesus is the Messiah. If you think about the unfolding of Revelation, there were important children in the unfolding of that revelation born in unusual and miraculous kind of ways. We can think of Isaac, we can think of Samuel, we can even think of John the Baptist who, who is the, the prophet like Isaiah proclaiming the coming of the Lord. All of them born to women beyond childbearing years. There's something in the, in the mentality, in the mindset of Jewish expectations that important children would be born in extraordinary ways. So here we come to Jesus, the Messiah. Should not the Messiah be born in the most amazing, the most extraordinary of ways? And what could be more extraordinary than a virgin becoming pregnant? 
The virgin birth is this cue, this signal of the Messiah having come, particularly to the Jewish audience. It is suitable for the extraordinary person we know as Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Reason number two, it guards the orthodox understanding of the person of Jesus Christ, that He is truly God and truly man. When it comes to doctrines that are complicated, that are hard to fathom, that we really cannot fully explain, where in which there is great mystery, the two greatest ones are the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the two natures of Jesus Christ. In order to understand these doctrines, we really understand them more by what they are not than by what they are. We put these, if you think about orthodoxy, it is kind of like lights on a runway or guardrails on a road. It's about being within these boundaries of orthodoxy. And the virgin birth acts like those lights on the runway or those guardrails on a road. It keeps us within the bounds of orthodoxy that Jesus possessed two distinct natures, one fully human, one fully divine. As to His human nature, the virgin birth makes it clear that Jesus had a real, true human nature from His mother. He was a fetus. He gestated. He was nourished from Mary's placenta. And while all of this occurred, while He was conceived, I should say, in an extraordinary way, He was born in a very ordinary way, just like other humans, except without sin. In other words, Jesus was truly human. And at the same time, the virgin birth holds us before us this idea that Jesus was fully divine because the absence of Joseph in that conception and the presence of the Holy Spirit tell us this child is like no other. And as Luke tells us in his gospel, he is the one who will be holy called the Son of God. In other words... Jesus was truly the Son of God, truly divine, truly human. The God-man and the virgin birth helps us to keep that straight, that understanding acts as those guardrails around the truth about Jesus' unique person. Reason number three, it affirms the covenantally significant role of Jesus as the second Adam. It affirms the significant covenant role of Jesus as the second Adam. Adam served as the representative of all humanity. Romans tells us that. By one man, Paul says, sin entered the world and death came through sin and death spread to all because all have sinned. Through imputation, we are all sinners. Through Adam's sin, through his role as our representative, he brought a death sentence. And so what we need is a second and better Adam. A covenant representative who is both like Adam and unlike Adam. Like him in the sense of being truly human. Unlike him in the sense of being free of sin. Free of the curse that is there for all the rest of humanity. And it is the virgin birth that makes that so clear. That Jesus is like and unlike Adam in the proper ways. In the covenantal ways that are so important to our salvation. And finally, reason number four. The virgin birth serves as a type of our spiritual birth, our salvation. It's a type of our own salvation. Now, when it comes to personally applying, you know, when I was writing this sermon, okay, what's the personal application of the virgin birth in our lives? <laughs> you know, it's like, what are, it's not, go and do likewise. I can't really say that. 
But this is not without personal application. And it's right here in this idea that it serves as a type about our own salvation, our own spiritual birth. If you think about what John says in John, in John 1, 11 through 13, he writes this, He, that is Jesus, came to what was his own. His own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. We're children of God. We're children of God. And then John goes on, who, that's speaking of us, were born, were children of God, born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, the NIV uses, or of a husband's will, but of God. You see what John is doing. He's connecting, he's relating, he's analogizing our salvation as children of God, those spiritually reborn, to the idea of the virgin birth. Like Jesus, we were not born of a husband's will. We were born of God, spiritually reborn by a supernatural act initiated by God alone. As Robert Lethem notes in his Systematic theology, when he speaks of the virginal conception, he says, it indicates that human capacity is disqualified and that salvation is from the Lord, the initiative is God's. And in that sense, the virgin birth becomes really personal. Really personal. Because it reminds us of what God did for us, the extraordinary supernatural birth that we receive in Christ, the rebirth. I found it fascinating reading the Heidelberg Catechism that the Catechism puts it in this really personal way. In, verse, in the question and answer 36, it says, the question is, how does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? How does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? And the answer is, He is our mediator. And in God's sight, He covers with His innocence and perfect holiness my sinfulness in which I was conceived. The virgin birth speaks about our new birth in Jesus Christ. It's very personal in that sense. It's typological of our own salvation. I know this doctrine is hard to believe. It wasn't any easier to believe back then than it is now. Even Mary herself, when she first heard of it, said, How can this be? Beloved, if we can believe that we are born anew from above by the Spirit of God in our salvation, we certainly can also believe that the Lord Jesus Christ was supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin. Those are the reasons why I believe and proclaim the virginal conception of our Lord, why I think it still matters and why I think it still remains a glorious and beautiful and profound sign, a sign that is both deep and high. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word. We thank You for the truths of Your Scripture. And we thank You for the glorious and supernatural way You brought about our salvation, both in the virginal conception of our Lord and in our own spiritual rebirth. We give you all praise and honor, Lord, for it is your work in our lives and in this world. We praise you for salvation that has been achieved by our Messiah, that has been applied to us. 
We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.